Welcome to Human Factors Cast, your weekly podcast for human factors, psychology, and design. What's going on, everybody? It is episode 222. It's a lot of twos. We're recording this live on October 14th. If only it was February 2nd, 2022. That would have lined up well. Uh, This is Human Factors Cast. I'm your host, Nick Rome, and I'm joined again by Mr. Barry Kirby. Uh, Good morning. Good good morning to you, sir. You did that because it's actually... it's the fifteenth for me now, isn't it? Yeah, so I'm I'm in the future. You are again in the future. We will make future jokes uh, all night tonight uh, or tomorrow. We got a great show for you tonight or tomorrow. We'll be talking about transforming exoskeletons and what the point, what the whole point of them is. And later, we're going to be answering some of the questions from the community about uh, defining innovation. Uh, so some of those tricky boundaries of intellectual property and when you can use them on your own work. And we'll talk about optimizing strategies for dealing with low research budgets. Uh, but first, just a couple programming notes and community update. Again, we do have Human Factors Minute available outside of Patreon. Uh, we have all 85 episodes up there. It's going to be updating with the same cadence. If Patreon's not your thing, you could go do that on Spotify or Anchor. Uh, but if you do want to pay just a penny more, you get access to other things. Uh, Patreon commercial will be later. I don't want to talk too much about self-advertisement. It's just a thing that supports the show. Anyway, uh, hey, Ergo X Conference. Speaking of exoskeletons, uh, we have been invited to Ergo X. Uh, it's a thing that's happening. We will provide you coverage, presumably um, similar coverage to other conferences that we've covered in the past. Uh, and HFES 2021 is coming up for the virtual event anyway. And, uh, you know, we know we pick up like a lot of new listeners from the uh, conferences a lot of times. So if you are new to the show, welcome. If you went to the conference in person, leave us a voicemail. Let us know how it went. And we'll put that in our coverage a little bit later this month. Uh, anyway, I think it's time for us to get into this part of the show we like to call... Human Factors News. Yes, this is the part of the show where we search all over the internet to bring you Human Factors News. Barry, what do we have up this week? So we're talking about a product called Coma 1.5, which can either be a buggy or a powered exoskeleton as required. So we've all been in that position where we've tried to lift something and we've not lifted it correctly or had to carry it over a distance when you can't see the ground. Equally, we put... probably seen films where we've seen humans use mechanical exoskeletons to move heavy loads, be it Avatar, Alien, or the most iconic, I guess, exoskeleton has to be Iron Man. Uh, But we're moving swiftly from science fiction to science fact. So Coma 1.5 has been developed by um, Atuan, which is a subsidiary of Panasonic. Uh, It's designed to help both mobility and lifting. So it's a dual purpose uh, device by alternately acting as a powered buggy or a two-legged lower body exoskeleton when carrying loads. So the idea behind it is when the user is traveling on smooth level surfaces like you know factory floors or warehouse floors, they can just stand up um, on the rig, hold onto its two control arms and get carried along by four motorized wheels. It's known as boogie mode. And it offers both the smoothest ride and the simplest operation, according to the manufacturers. But so, uh, should the user need to climb the stairs or over an obstacle, the, the pushing of a button switch is the uh, setup over to a two-legged mode. It's for two front wheels, then retract back to form two powered articulated legs that follow the movements of the user's legs, following the, uh, supporting them as they step up and step down. It's also reportedly capable of autonomous, autonomously spotting and avoiding obstacles 
utilizing integrated cameras and an AI-based computer vision systems. There's currently no word on when the device will reach production, but it does open up some interesting questions for us as human factors practitioners into the design, use cases, and issues surrounding the use of exoskeleton technologies. So what do you think of that then, Nick? I, what's the point? So look, I, when I saw this, when I saw this in, in my office hours, I thought this was such a cool, like it, if you are uh, listening to this, go watch the video that they have put out on this exoskeleton. Uh, it's in our news roundup. Um, you know, we've credited them for uh, sharing the video with us. So go check that out if you haven't already. It's cool to see this thing transform, you know, that goes up to a flight of steps and then it like, you know, you can yeah. you can walk up the steps. To me, this makes a lot of sense for mobility, um, where you know it, it's an alternative transportation method for those who maybe have uh, poor lower body strength. Um, that makes sense to me. The thing that I'm struggling a little bit is is with the lift loads because it, in uh, at least from the design, it looks like you have to hold on to these like joysticks to to control this thing and so i'm like where's the lifting at and and maybe it's something that you load onto it i'm not quite sure but they they cite that it's for lifting i may be getting too in the weeds here but that's my general impression um and this makes a lot of sense for mobility but not so much for lifting so barry what's your what's your impression of the article I'd so I'd, I'd agree. It's, I mean, at the end of the day, it's it's been reported through you know uh, um, through through the um, through the science magazine, but is effectively I think it's it's like a white paper, isn't it? It's it's them. Um, it's it's promoting a bit of a product, but it's an interesting idea that they've taken two ideas and tried to do the whole pushing them together into one. So exoskeletons um, to as you as you quite rightly say to help low low, low limb mobility. It's something that's really needed. It's something that's um, well researched in, in likes of defense as well as um, you know aging populations and all that sort of stuff. Everything from articulated knees up to um, full, full lower limbs. Really, really good. And the more we do need to more do more work in that area uh, for reasons I'm, we'll we'll probably go on to. And then also the need to do lifting stuff. The about the ability to lift heavy things safely um, because people don't lift things properly. You know, get, getting back problems because you're lifting boxes when you shouldn't do is also a problem that we need to solve. So what they've done is turn around and say, right, let's try and solve both problems in one machine. And I just don't like it. <laughs> um, I, I think there's, like they say, the, it, there's, not, you know, there's no hands-free control. So if you, how can you do the uh, control it safely and properly when you, when you have to, when you, it, just, it just doesn't feel very intuitive to me. Um, so there, there's like also the, a, there's also a couple of things going on here too. It's not only just the control, but it's a, there's a lack of this. Um, there's a lack of support. I, like you're just standing up. It's almost like just this mobility scooter, for a lack of a better word, with with a with a climbing mode. Um, I, I don't know. I, I cut you off. I'm sorry. You continue. <laughs> no, no, no. I think you're absolutely right. I mean, the other thing that I thought was interesting was this this uh, introduction of AI to it as well. So it's going to stop you crashing into things. And that type of thing by use of its AI and, and its cameras. Now, AI is I we I was in a discussion just today about this actually that AI is something that we throw everything at. You know, if you've got a little bit of um, something, AI has to be on board of everything. And I kind of I worry with things like this that if you've got you know if they're going to suddenly stop you from doing what it is that you think you're going to do with the with the lack of support above the waist, 
you're expected to go in one direction, it suddenly doesn't do that because the AI has stopped it. Are you going, then just going to fall over? Um, there's no back. So if you start leaning back on that thing, you, what's going to happen? You topple over backwards and then the whole thing lands on top of you. Um, and if you're carrying a weight, then um, yeah, there's... But I do think what I do like about the story for us is it does bring up a whole heap of human factors issues here that I think um, there's a lot of production items that, um, that that are in play that really need some good HF input. Yeah, um, I agree. You, you have a good segue there um, or, or a good tease for the human factors issues. I do want to get into like just generic background about exoskeletons. I mean, we've. I think we've talked about exoskeletons on on the show before, and and maybe there's a couple references you can look at for that, and maybe we'll talk about them here in a second. But just generally, uh, exoskeletons they're they can be defined in many different ways, and what qualifies as an exoskeleton is fairly broad. Mm-hmm. Um, I think in in the broadest terms, right, it, it's mechanical support for some of this muscular movement, um, and you know, if you were to go beyond that, I think it's you can consider it like wearable technology to either enable, augment, or assist with physical activities. And and really, it's kind of the assistance of the physical body moving is ultimately what exoskeletons are. I think there's largely a there it's it's a big tent for what considered you know what yeah. is considered an exoskeleton and uh i i guess this falls under that big tent when you think about this story uh anything that i missed there in terms of what they are i think it is i mean i think we generally generally look at exoskeletons as being um uh, force multipliers so as you quite really say so using some sort of um support to do what you are doing already so if you're lifting it provides you more lifting power one thing that we possibly um don't often think of as a as a skeleton is when you're providing uh, protection um so if you've got something you know that that's a, you know you could argue that a spacesuit is a sort of exoskeleton um because of the nature it provide it, it protects you from the outside environment however um i some I've, I've seen that definition fall under exoskeleton before i don't necessarily like it because i think it's a protective suit it's a protective bubble it's not providing you any more capability as such um, so that's a, it's an interesting discussion to have because we've sort of seen it argued both ways. Um, but yeah, I think there's, it, 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 it all depends what you're going to use it for, doesn't it? Um, cause there is, there's a, there is quite a wide range of use. Would you agree? Just think, um, thinking a bit free ball, um, curveball that the, 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 you've got things like telepresence, teleexistence, which is, you know, using remote control operation. Um, so you could be using an articulated arm and that type of thing, and it could provide um, an activity. But be, if that's remote from you, even by a few feet, but not actually part of the exoskeleton that's uh, or part of the skeleton nature of what you're doing, I think that falls outside of the um, scope of exoskeletons. That's a remote operation. I, w- so, I would agree. I would agree. And I think the difference would be if you had some sort of input device that mapped your movements mm-hmm. to the movements of that other thing, that control device would be an exoskeleton because it's augmenting your mo- motion, your movement uh, of your muscular, you know, your muscular movements with uh, input to another yeah. device, right? It's augmenting it. So I, I would argue that the device itself would be, but not the the controlled device. Um, 
Let's get into what exoskeletons are used for. I kind of alluded to this. Uh, we talked about it a couple times on the show. Uh, generally, they're kind of used for uh, industry, healthcare, military. There's a couple other applications, but those are the big three. Yeah. Um, you want to talk about industry, what what you can do? Yeah. I mean, I, I think the obvious ones are, you know, around, you know, warehousing, isn't it? it it's taken there, the, the stuff that generally you need two or three people to do, lifting, moving, organizing, um, and actually using the exoskeleton to basically reduce the amount of manpower you need to do the job. So rather than two people lifting a box, if you can have one person lifting it because they've got um, got a me mechanical application, then um, then brilliant. Um, I think you've talked about this on the podcast in one or two episodes, such as episode <laughs> 151 with the industrial robot at CES 2020, or episode 66 with the Ford assembly line, and episode 43, uh, just off the top of my head, um, look at lo loads for carrying large loads. Um, but yeah, I mean, industry, I think is, is a real, it's, it's a real fertile ground for this because, you know, it's, it's an area a of high stress on the body, um, lots of, lots of, uh, manual input and lots of, it's, it's high risk, lots of risk of injury. So the use of mechanical, uh, so the exoskeletons to reduce the, um, the, the, the risk of harm to operators is obviously going to be quite high. What about healthcare? Yeah. So healthcare is another big one, right? You have, um, surgery uh which is which is an application where maybe it could steady your hand in some of those uh situations or um you know prevent you from getting muscle fatigued if you're standing for hours over a patient or something like that so there's some applications there we've also talked about um you know exoskeletons in the healthcare domain before on the show surprise surprise and if you missed any of the references i will say them all one more time before we start to get into the human factors issues but we talked about having brain signals drive exoskeletons that was back episode 205 then you have uh rehabilitation efforts using exoskeletons uh using artificial intelligence right you said ai's on board everything that was episode 199. I realized that we had two exoskeleton episodes in uh, in a two-month span. It was, <laughs> And then we had exosuits actually helping with stroke victims. That was back at episode 166. Um, cool. Let's get into military applications. What can you do with the military? Well, the military is, is one of these things, particularly when you're talking about um, ground-based troops. Um, but it needn't be just that because the obviously the military does include lots of logistics and, and that type of thing, which is alludes to what we've already talked about with, with the warehousing and stuff. But fundamentally, you're looking at augmenting the soldier capability. So you, you could immediately start thinking about you've got, you know, um, integrated weapon sites and all that sort of stuff and like that, that real high-tech stuff. But you've got the basic stuff as well, that um, soldiers are expected to move quickly and carry heavy loads in, you know, random terrain. So you've got, you've got all of these ideas um, of supplementing the being able to, you know, lower limbs being able to run and uh, being able to carry heavier weaponry um and just just heavier loads in general so um and again you've talked about this on a on a previous episode i'm, I'm pleased we've picked a topic that you, you don't talk around much but if you go around to uh, episode 94 and look at lightning the combat load that's one of these these sort of things where it goes into um the, the sort of technologies that they've been um playing with in that way but it is in the military it is something that they're constantly looking at all the time and and knowing in the particularly with the work we do in the UK, that is still something that is very much ongoing and very pertinent. Yeah. Is, I, <laughs> there, there's a couple other applications and, and yeah, you jest, but like I, uh, you know, it's 
Re really, we do have a lot of resources available for exosillage <laughs> and stuff. We yeah. must like it because I always, I always try to favor it because it's like it's a, it's a topic that I wouldn't pick on my own, and I'm like, oh yeah, that's interesting. And then <laughs> it's a being, you know, and and really, we have no excuse uh, since we started letting the patrons choose the news. So you know what, it's it's off my plate. Uh, but we true. have done a lot of them. So so for some of these other applications, though, I want to get into. Um, you know, basic, basic level, uh, augmenting your ability to walk and run. We talked about that episode 139. Um, and then generally, you know, you, you have the healthcare applications, but I think you could also um, use exoskeletons just for like everyday use. And especially with something like providing mobility to an aging population, right? It's not necessarily a healthcare concern, they're just aging. And, and so you give them an exosuit or exoskeleton or um, some sort of augmentation to help with muscle fatigue or uh, allow them to go further, faster, uh, without expending as much energy. Yeah. So there are other applications here. Okay. For everybody listening, get out your pen and paper. I'm going to read off all these episodes for you. Uh, and I will start with one that I didn't mention on this list, and that is our coverage of Ergo X uh, from 2018. We actually sat down and talked with Chris Reed and Dave Rempel about Ergo X, and that's a good place to start. Um, Ergo X was a pretty cool conference, and it was really awesome to sit down and like have everybody in their in their dorky exoskeleton sitting in this conference. And it was it was I say dorky endearingly because it was it was an awesome conference. And I can't wait to go back this year. I'm really excited they invited us back. Um, so we'll start with there. And then we have uh, I guess we'll start with industry, right? You have Lowe's carrying for large loads in, in their warehouses. That was episode 43. You have Ford assembly line workers. That's episode 66. You have industrial robots um, being presented at CES 2020 that allow you to multiply forces of carrying ability. That was episode 151. Then let's get into the healthcare domain. You have using brain signals to drive those exoskeletons. That was back in episode 205. Blake and Elise had a great discussion on that while I was out. You had rehabilitation using artificial intelligence. That was episode 199. And then exosuits exo helping stroke victims, episode 166. Then we go to military and we had a an episode on lightning combat load. That was episode what, uh, what 94? Jeez, 94. Oh, we've been doing this a long time. And then, of <laughs> course, uh, augmenting the ability to walk and run. That was episode 139. All right. So we've talked a lot about the applications. We've talked a little bit about the article. Let's get into some of the human factors issues because it's really important, right? You want to yeah. go over like the first maybe four or five of these? Yeah, I think, I mean... Just sort of refresh what you said about having so having so many episodes on this. Yes, there is quite a lot, but there's still so much to do with HF because they're, they're so new and there's so many different things. So the first thing, the big things that, that hit me straight away is around latency and control. It's got to be, you know, the 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 input signals from whatever, however you're inputting it. I'm not in the in the example that we've got is is through joysticks and things. But if you're particularly, if, you know, when you're doing sensors off muscles um, and things like that, if you don't have a good speed of latency, um, a high speed latency, then um, you're not going to be able to react in the way that you're going to need to. You you maybe do normal movements, but when you're going to, we talked about. Um, abnormal or maybe edge cases where you might start falling or you might drop something or start to something might um, start to balance uh, off balance or something like that. You need to be able to have the right of really fast latency to um, or a really 
like a short latency, to make sure that you can do that. Then that leads you into control. How do we actually control these things? Are they, you know, we've got things like Elon Musk trying to do the brain HCI with us at the, mo at the moment, which brain HCI is a really fascinating um, topic. I'm not entirely sure I want Elon Musk in my head, but the idea about you have, um, you know, the, 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 your thought control to control um, the, um, the exoskeleton, or do you go, do, does it go off muscles, or do you have some sort of joystick control? Um, them two things, I think, uh, if we can hit them right, then almost everything else falls into place. But then the last, the, the, the last two things I'll mention is around limit, uh, the limits, because we as, as humans have, have a range of movement. Um, if the exoskeletons don't have the same range of movement, um, or at least similar, um, then are you actually restricting people? And how do we make sure that people, um, you know, uh, respect them limit them limits? And the 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 limits are either on range of movement um, or just on the lifting capability. What happens if you you know the, you can lift two hundred kilograms with this with this thing, um, and you accidentally lift two hundred five and it breaks? What happens at that point? How does it um, does it have graceful degradation um, and and things like that? So yeah, they're 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 my first four big hitters. Yeah, I, I'm going to go just a little bit off script here. I know we have this list of things that we want to discuss, but I do we do record these live, and sometimes we get comments that are just too good to ignore. So there's one from Barry W. in the chat here. Not this Barry that I'm talking to, but another Barry. Uh, he says, so basically, I depend on a mobility scooter because I have failing hips. I hate the looks people give because I use that thing. So in the future, if exoskeletons could be used for lower limbs, but one that's not too noticeable, that would be amazing. And I want to take the opportunity to talk about the human factors issues associated with that, because that is barriers to acceptance. Um, you know, and that's a huge human factors issue when it comes to exoskeletons. That's something that, um, you know, things like ease of use. Right. So being able to put it on, uh, you know, it, that's going to be a huge factor in whether or not somebody's actually able to use one. Right. Uh, and then you have. Uh, the number of people around you using exoskeletons, there's this whole social pressure, right? And I think this is what Barry's getting at here, where if you, you know, if it was subtle, if people didn't necessarily realize that you had an exoskeleton on, or it was so subtle that it, you know, didn't feel awkward or clunky to use, you might be more likely to use it. And then you also have things like performance. How does it really impact your ability to do things, right? Is the exoskeleton going to improve the way in which you are either doing your job if you're in uh, in a warehouse, or is it going to actually allow you to move faster, uh, you know, exerting less energy? So those are really important um, pieces of information when it comes to barriers and acceptance. And I did want to just circle back to one of the things that you were saying Barry, now I'm talking to you, Barry, the the control issue, right? And and I think there's one thing um, that I would like to add to that is is kind of the cognitive load associated with control. Mm. Um, the, the more passive you can make that control to work with the body, the less cognitive load that you have to deal with in order to make the thing do, make the exoskeleton do the thing that you want it to do. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about what happens when it fails? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I get all the best ones. Um, no, but I, to me, this is um, this is, the, it's things like this that are absolutely key because when things are working fine, then then it's brilliant, isn't it? And but rarely do things uh, work exactly as you want. So 
we all automatically assume that um, things like exoskeleton, use the lower limb example, is going to be you know fine working on uh, on on flat land. But what happens? To, I mean, me and the other Barry, we both live in Wales, which is known for being very very hilly. Um, and so, will it work walking up a hill? And if you um, if you're in the situation where you take it, so it might not be out of limits, but you work it in such a way that it does go out of limits. Um, what happens when you fall over or, or you fail? But what ha- then? Then that leads you on to well, what happens when it breaks down? You know, just like having your car or your bike or whatever. You know, you get mechanical failure. What happens if you're like halfway up a up a flight of stairs or something like that, and and either the battery gives out or a mechanical failure happens and you're sort of stuck halfway up how do what's what's them sort of recovery modes and how easy would that be to um um to work and so yeah i I think there's loads of things around like that which will get solved in time but i think with um more of a human factors approach really early on like now um a lot of this can come to the fore and, and it'd be fairly simple to solve you'd like to think um, but I don't, I don't see, I mean, with the example we've got in the article at the moment, I don't see that that is immediately obvious. I think, I think the article kind of shows me that they're thinking about it, right? They, they understand that exoskeletons have to adapt to various modes. And mm-hmm. so, you know, maybe there is a hill mode in the future that, um, that can help with that type of thing. And yeah, you're absolutely right though. Like the, the design of what happens when it fails is going to be critical because, you know, where is the battery? Is it somewhere easily accessible or is it, you know, on your back where you can't reach it? Uh, Does the exoskeleton lock in place for heavy loads while you're carrying a heavy load? Or do you, you know, are you forced to drop it, which could be, you know, very costly to, uh, somebody or to you if it falls on you and it's not discharged in the correct way, right? So there's really important human factors issues that we have to think about. Um, I do want to talk about sort of these diminishing returns uh, associated with exoskeletons, right? We talk a lot about augmenting muscular, uh, augmenting muscles for better performance. And it might actually be the case that you design an exoskeleton for one part of the body and it might affect the way your whole body works and it might not necessarily be an improvement if you are straining another piece of your body um, at the, I guess, reducted, re- reduced, reducted is not a word, re- reduced uh, effort or I guess reduced fatigue in the other part. Right. So so the way the body works holistically is really important. Um, you know, the, the benefits to that specific body part or region that it's it's trying to solve might be completely negated by its effect on another region. So that's just something I wanted to bring up. Um, do you have any other things that you want to talk about here, human factors issues wise? Yeah, well, the, the other thing I think for me is, is around training, because the, you know, you're going to want this thing to be useful, used by everybody. And if you're going to take the approach that we have to technology now, you don't have to have to have a user manual, do you? you want to be able to strap the thing on and away you go? Um, so how intuitive? It goes back to what you were saying um, earlier around the around the control about just how intuitive is it going to be? So you, would you be able to just get into it, power it on, and start walking with it, and it and it do everything it needs to do, but also it look after you in a um, if it does start failing, it tells you exactly what's going on and things like that. Or are you going to have to go and take like a degree course just to be able to go and use 
um, you use your new exoskeleton trousers. So I think there's a whole bunch of stuff around that, around redu- make, reducing the training need as much as as much as practicable, so it's intuitive for use. Um, and then combine that with with this with the safety stuff we've we've kind of touched on, um, because there's not only the you know it's operation, but fundamentally you're talking about mechanical parts, and so the ability for, you know if you've got your hands in the wrong place at the wrong time. Um, when you're when the knee bends and yeah you suddenly then you you now need an XOR hand because you just crushed it in your XOR leg, um, so yeah I think there's a lot of stuff on on that to be concerned about but um, yeah I, I think getting the right sort of HF people involved we could we could solve a lot of that. Yeah, speaking of getting the right human factors people involved, I know uh, when we did attend uh, Ergo X back in 2018 there was active development starting on industry standards for exoskeletons. And I truthfully haven't checked in on that standardization effort since 2018, since we've been there. But there are human factors professionals that are thinking about this in a way that's going to benefit the entire industry. And so, yeah, we got some smart people working on it and looking forward to the future to see what that holds. Uh, let's get back to the article. I, I mean, we talked a lot about the human factors issues. We talked about the background on exoskeletons. Is there anything else about this article that you want to bring up before we get out of here? Um, I think I was probably a bit down on it to begin with, but actually you raised the point about it, 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 that transforming motion that he's trying to do. It's trying to solve two issues with, with one solution. And I think that probably should be applauded for um for at least um, putting it out there and tr- and trying to trying to do stuff i still think it's got a got a way to go um but it's an it's it's a um an interesting next step i agree i i would i would offer the same sentiment i think i was i first um was excited when i saw this story and then i thought critically about it and then i thought critically again and was like okay no there's this is an active effort trying to solve problems and again we applaud that so uh you know i one thing i didn't do was social thoughts and i meant to do this throughout but i don't think we got any so that's okay i will just say we did ask a social thoughts to see if anyone had used an exoskeleton uh and 100 percent has been no uh and so that's that's kind of crazy that um you know i've i've never used an exoskeleton myself now that i think about it have you um i've I've not directly used one, but I've had one. Um, I've had I've, I've stood next to one whilst it's been used. Um, okay. So. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so that's um, that's where we're at for the social thoughts. Uh, and uh, again, just huge thank you to our patrons this week for selecting our topic. Thank you to our friends over at New Atlas for our news story this week. If you want to follow along, join me for office hours on Mondays where I find these news stories. We do post the links to the original articles as we find them. Uh, you know, and, and you can always join us in our Slack or Discord for more discussion on these stories. We're going to take a quick break, and then we'll be back to see what's going on in the Human Factors community right after this. Human Factors Cast brings you the best in Human Factors news, interviews, conference coverage, and overall fun conversations into each and every episode we produce. But we can't do it without you. The Human Factors Cast Network is 100% listener-supported. All the funds that go into running the show come from our listeners. Our patrons are our priority, and we want to ensure we're giving back to you for supporting us. 
Pledges start at just $1 per month and include rewards like access to our weekly Q&As with the hosts, personalized professional reviews, and Human Factors Minute, a Patreon-only weekly podcast where the hosts break down unique, obscure, and interesting Human Factors topics in just one minute. Patreon rewards are always evolving, so stop by patreon.com slash humanfactorscast to see what support level may be right for you. Thank you, and remember, it depends. Huge thank you, as always, to our patrons and especially our honorary Human Factors cast staff patrons like Michelle Tripp. Patrons like you keep the show running. Thank you all so much for your continued support. If you want to become a patron, we are always doing some new interesting things over there. Like I said, uh, I don't know if I plugged the lab this week, but we, we've always got some fun things churning in the lab and our Patreon uh subscribers our patrons are always kind of first in the know to see what's going on we do release some bonus content over there so if that's something that you're interested in giving back to the show uh you can do that um we have a whole separate podcast for you over there uh new rewards fresh look always updated you know all that stuff anyway uh we're, we're close to some of our goals so consider it that's all i'm saying anyway i tell you i think it's time we get into this next part of the show we like to call it came from it came from yes this week it is reddit this is the part of the show where we search all over the internet to bring you topics the community's talking about if you find these answers useful give us a like wherever you're at help other people find this content we have three of them tonight uh and i'm going to start with this first one here this one's from the user experience subreddit this is by Susie xo says an interviewer stated they needed innovation Uh, I had a job interview for a UX designer at a fintech company. The interviewer stated that they are looking for high innovation, and he wants users to be amazed by the innovation. He then stated it is a chaotic company, and I'll have to figure things out by myself. He asked, how do you know if users will find the product easy to use? I said, there are several ways. First, through research and user testing. Second, if there's limited time, I can do some heuristic evaluation and look at industry leaders like Google. He then said, I don't want to hire senior designers because I don't want standard designs like Google. I want something different and new. He is not a designer, so I'm not sure if what he's saying makes sense from a designer perspective. The company is to help users pay their rent, so I think the main goal should be to make it easy and accessible to use. Barry, there's a lot going on here. I want to talk about innovation first, and then maybe we can get into expectations about what you your job role is so what is innovation to you well this always makes me laugh in a slightly cynical way because everybody always innovation is such a buzzword at the moment everybody wants innovation not only does everybody want innovation but everybody innovates um and that's just not true so for me innovation is actually not just coming up with ideas out of thin air but actually the the definition i tend to use is the transfer of um an implementation from one domain where it's used to a do, to another domain where it's not used, um, because generally you, nothing is new under the sun. Um, things have generally been done, um, either done or thought of before. Um, you really get back to that for that first thought. So when people say about um, you know they, they they want an innovative solution, okay, they want they want something they haven't seen before. They want something um, that's fine. So go and look, go and look in other domains, go and pull that st- pull that sort of stuff across. And and then there's the other one around. Let's what what are we thinking outside the box? Um, well, that just means you haven't worked out what box you're in. 
um, because you're actually just in a bigger box. Um, and for me, it's really important to, to understand your boundaries, which actually kind of gets to what this question is is about. You know, it's I like the um, the questions that, that that were posed. Right, so do I have a lot of time to do this? Do I have a a little little amount of time to get this sort of research because there's different uh, approaches you can take, um, which seems really good. But then to have that, um, well, I don't want to do what everybody else is doing. Okay, um, but depends how much money you want to throw at it, I guess. So we'll, we'll talk uh, about budget later. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we will. But, uh, look, what, what does innovation mean to you? Uh, look, innovation to me is a lot what you said. I think there's a way to think about innovation where you are not as disruptive as sort of these startup industries, right? They, they, they are startups because they are disrupting an industry. And it, it takes a lot to get to that point. Now, to me, innovation is not, a, like you said, it's taking from other domains and applying it to the domain you're in. But I think beyond that, it's also improving on the margins of what you're already doing. And I think the marginal gains across sort of what you're doing, right? You might improve a process slightly over here and then sort of improve a process slightly over there, but together they may bring up the whole process, the process as a whole, right? And yeah. so it's it's not just thinking about sort of the, these big sweeping changes. It's how can you make miniature changes across many different things for this constant improvement that always improves the way that you do things. It always improves the procedures that you're implementing. It's improving the designs because uh, some other industry is doing it well, right? So these margins, that's what I think. And then there's the discussion about expectations from somebody who's outside of your domain. This is yeah. from a design perspective, but this happens also in human factors where people don't necessarily understand what we do and they have this idea in their head that they want to happen. And it's a lot about pushing back and say, my role is to do X in you know human factors. It's to uh, improve, improve products, processes, procedures, services, uh, things for humans. That's yeah. that's our role broadly. For a designer, it might be to make something pretty. And I I, I uh, don't want to be degrading there, but like, <laughs> you know, their, their, their job is to make something that's not only usable, but beautiful. And, and there's a lot of crossover. Anyway, the, the point is you push back and tell them what your job is. Uh, maybe not in the interview, but, you know, once you get hired. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's it is one of these things, though, isn't it? It's the how again because because this is a an interview. It's it does give you a real good insight into what it is that you're potentially going to be going to do, and an interview very much I still think is a two way process. That not only you, you want yes, it, it's always so tempted to think that yes, I need to get this job, I need to get the offer, I need to get the offer. But there's going to be times where you just look at it and go, actually, what the vibes that I'm getting from the interviewer or panel of interviewers just means it's not somewhere I want to be. If they're, if they're asking you stupid questions or what you consider to be stupid questions or questions that are not relevant, then d what does that tell you about what it is that you're going into? Uh, it might just be that you just get getting um, interviewed by HR, which is fine. Um, they, they, you can't expect them to have a, a technical knowledge. 
but um, yeah, you, you've got to be able to take your own uh, take your own view on that um, about if it's somewhere you want to be. But yeah, as you say, if if they're as long as you lay out, and I think it's a, it's a bit of a problem that we sometimes have because we want to please everybody. You want to, you know, if somebody says, oh, and that it sort of does lead into imposter syndrome to a certain extent, because as soon as somebody says, well, I want to be like this, you start questioning yourself going, oh, should I be delivering that? Oh, it, um, have I got it? Have I got it wrong in myself? Um, then you give yourself a shake and no, of course, no, I know what I'm talking about. Lay it on the line and um, and say, well, you know, you, you in this instance, you can either have lots of really original um, design and development. That's going to take time. It's going to, it's going to cost money, et cetera, et cetera. Or if you want something quick and dirty, then we'll go to, you know, we'll take on what, what is good practice. Um, if you consider Google to be good practice or whoever you take as your lead, use what they've done. Because um, chances are they're, they're quite successful. I've, I've, I've heard of Google. I think they kind of know a little bit about what they're doing. Therefore, it's probably not a bad, bad lead to take. Um, if you want to borrow and steal. Yeah. <laughs> it's kept me going for a long time. Yeah. <laughs> Same here. All right. Let's, let's talk about intellectual property uh so this next one here is from the also from the user experience subreddit this is from neon knights they write using my company's design language in a personal project over the past two and a half years i've refined my company's design language to put to the point where i find it incredibly intuitive to design with i'm a co-founder of the company but it's owned by a large conglomerate i'm working on a personal project and i've started designing off of uh, I've started designing it using my company's design language because it was intuitive. I'm now struggling whether this is inappropriate to be publishing something that has a similar look to your company. I asked my CEO. He said it would probably wasn't a big deal, but I'm skeptical. I've been trying for the past two days to redesign it with a different design language, but none of them strike me as much as my company's. Do you think it's fine if I use the design language and maybe change a couple things, topography, colors, etc.? So this is a more important question about intellectual property. What's yours? What's the company's? And uh, Barry, I'm really curious to get your thoughts on this one. It's simple. Don't do it. Um, <laughs> and, and, and a fundamental thing. And there's a couple of reasons for this. So yes, you can take something that works intuitively for you. You can probably put in a couple of changes. Um, as long as they're, if they're significant and allows you to be different to what, what it is that they've got. But what yes, you if you're the co-founder in the company, but you don't own it, then um, no matter you opening yourself up to the the owning company, uh, whoever whoever owns it, coming to you and saying, actually, you you just ripped that straight off us. Uh, we own that. We we own this um, the the uh, this design um, uh, this de this design uh, language, and you've used that for your product. Therefore, we own. Uh, we're going to sue you for it. It could even get even worse than that because if they if you produce something quite innovative, it's you, it's your own thing, and you try and go to market with it, then um, as, as your own personal project, because you've used their design language, then they could argue that they own they now own your IP. So it's also worth check, checking your own contract around that because um, sometimes companies do write clauses in there around that. As um as another example of this, so it's not using design design language, but if you I've known of some companies, if you talk about extracurricular activities on their email systems, and you talk about potentially a, a new um um you know a new product or something like that that you're developing elsewhere, 
they actually have legitimate claim to your IP because you've used their system to talk about it. And and so legally, they could, they sometimes can go in and um, at least give you a hard time over it. Um, I've known of one situation where they've actually taken a, a product that somebody's produced in their own time, but used they actually they spoke about it on a on a company email system to make that work. Um, so in short, I the level of risk I think you've got is quite high. Um, if there's something that that you want to actually even if it's a personal project that you're just doing something for home or, you know, that type of thing, just do, do your own thing. It's so much easier. Yeah. It's, it's pretty cut and dry when you have uh, a situation where it is a, a uh, visible thing, right? Especially in design, you don't want to do that because you, you can clearly tie it back to another company's thing. It gets a little bit more tricky when you're talking about IP that's, more process based or procedure based i would still advocate that you don't do it and in fact i there's there are i think it's a best practice here at least in the states where yes the the company owns everything you do on their laptop and so uh if you do have any up to, you know any original ideas i would say don't document it on that laptop document it on your own laptop uh work on it away from the company computer because that can come back and bite you uh, they they do technically own that. And so as for taking processes, procedures from one company to another, this is a difficult question because you have a lot of things that are standard best practice. Like if I did a heuristic evaluation at one company and I did it at another company and it was the same methodology, but the methodology was out there in the literature where who owns that IP? Well, technically, it's the person who did the research on it. And, you know, if it is an industry best practice, then you have the shared collective uh, best interest to ensure that everyone is using that methodology. So that way, products are the best they can be. And so it, it gets a little bit more. And I don't have the answers. I don't have the answers, uh, to be clear. But it does get a little bit more dicey when you're talking about uh, proprietary processes, procedures, but things like code and things like designs, those are easy to trace back. So just don't do it. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Just uh, back off. <laughs> all right. We, we got one more here. Uh, anyone a researcher at a company with low research budget? How detrimental is it? This is by peanut butter person from the user experience subreddit. Hey, everyone. Does anyone you uh, does anyone work as a user experience researcher at an organization with low to little research budget? I'm debating if I should take a new UX researcher job at a small slash mid-sized company with very small research budget. How does recruiting happen? Coming from a huge organization with unlimited budget, it gets me kind of nervous. Would you rely mostly on customers for user sessions as opposed for, to external? I'd love to hear your experiences. Would this be a deal breaker for you? I imagine it may slow things down quite a bit uh, due to longer times of recruiting and getting the right participants. How do you deal with a situation where you have a limited budget? Have you ever experienced a situation with a limited budget, Barry? Well, <clears throat> like every day of the week. Um, this is, I mean, this is, yeah, this is day normal for me. Um, at the end of the day, I mean, I've, I've, I've never been in a situation with a company with an unlimited budget. I mean, that that almost scares me more because where are your boundaries? Um, I think the... I think with any research budget, you always have to scope it to to some level. 
and you're always going to going to um, scope it to some sort of time cost quality type issue and and particularly with the UX research going going for a small job uh, small mid-sized company um with a small research budget so you just got to tailor your cloth accordingly um you, you you might be able to do less engagement but you can but you you can do more novel engagement. You maybe can't um, utilize the big whiz bang, uh, really expensive tools. You know the really expensive eye trackers, the all that sort of stuff to be able to do what you're doing. But there are cheaper solutions out there that you, the, you can be slightly more innovative in in your solutions to hook back to the other one. Um, so I think it's. I mean, for me, I I like the challenge. I like the challenge of people coming up with you know a very specific budget, but wanting the world. And you can sort of sit there and say, "Well, actually, I can't deliver. I can't deliver the world, but I can deliver a significant chunk of it using these techniques." Um, so I don't. I, I part of me wants the challenge of an unlimited budget. I don't know what I could do with an unlimited budget. That'd be amazing. Um, what about you? Yeah. So budget is interesting because there's. Uh, well, I want to tackle this from two fronts, right? The budget is interesting because on some projects you have that built into the budget and you just have to consider how much you have at your disposal. Uh, and most of the time it kind of, you have an idea of the tools that you've used, you know roughly what fits into that mold. But if you're coming from a situation where you had an unlimited budget and nothing's off limits, then that's a little bit different because now you have to pare it down. However, I will echo that if you get into that situation, some of that those constraints do drive innovation and they do sort of force you to look into different solutions that you might not otherwise. And so having those constraints actually might help you. And really, when it comes down to it, I don't know how you feel about this, but really all you need is some sort of spreadsheet software and some sort of note taking software, if that pen and paper can do just fine some way to create a form for people to fill in information is nice to have but you can do your job with kind of the bare minimum and if you are coming and approaching problems from that perspective where everything else is a nice to have then you can do quite a bit with just a small budget let me tell you that <laughs> yeah completely agree all right. Well, I think it's that time of the show. It needs no introduction. It is just one more thing. Barry, what's your one more thing for this week? So, actually, as an update from your one more thing last week, I've watched Squid Game all the way through oh. now. So I'm, I'm now in the zone. I, I get it. Um, but my proper one more thing this week, over the past few weeks, we've had um, fuel droughts in the UK. So we haven't had the supplies getting to the, um, the, fuel, to the petrol stations. And so this has led me to now start really considering um, the purchase of, a, of an EV, an um, uh, electric vehicle. And it's been a really interesting thought because I'm the sort of person, I've never bought a new car before. You know, I've always, I always buy sort of secondhand used cars. And so this has been uh, an education, just the, the the sort of things that you can go and get up to. And I guess the biggest insight for me was going to the local garage. They had an unveiling of a of a new EV, and they don't have to treat you differently when you're going to look at a new car as opposed to a second hand car. The, um, the 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 customer experience was 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 very different. Um, so mainly because you're going to spend a lot more bucks with them. Um, but it was it was in but. Going to see this new EV was really nice. It's interesting seeing how the technology is moving on so quickly, because um, we'd sort of looked at the you know the, the Teslas and things like this. This was a this was a Kia that we looked at, and just the more integration back into 
almost what a car should look like, but also making use of the gadgets. I just think it's now seeing it hands-on and actually it's very different evaluating EVs from a distance. You know, we've talked about Teslas, we've talked about the, you know, um, automation technologies and things, but um, now seeing them quite up close with the potential of getting my own hands on one, it's getting, um, it's getting quite exciting. Now, are, are you going to go for like all the bells and whistles that allow you for some self-driving capabilities or anything like that? So, I've been thinking about it, but I don't know whether it's a bit like us having cruise control in the UK because we don't have quite the same long open roads that you have in the States to actually truly make use of cruise control. Um, in fact, I probably use con- cruise control more to make sure I don't speed in, in speed limited areas more than anything else. Um, so we whilst we do obviously we've got motorways and stuff like that so you you could use them i was talking to an ev user um last saturday um who they use it quite a lot when they're on the motorways and and they quite liked it so part of me is quite tempted um just purely because i i mean i'm as you know i'm an absolute gadget geek so i would absolutely love to have it but it's one of these things would you use it for maybe the first few weeks and then actually just not bother after that you just you just crack on um but i'd like to have i'd like to have the opportunity well who knows if we get a couple more patrons we might uh... <laughs> well that's true i mean <laughs> it's, for, it's for the show right it's for the show i was gonna say the the the, the um the discuss branded tesla just just waiting in the drive oh man well i i want to talk about my one more thing because it's uh it's a, a culture shock what's uh, yeah i guess that's the best way i can put it so i just found out that well i didn't just find this out i found this out a couple weeks ago but i am now using a macintosh a a macbook pro for full-time work and this is an adjustment for me and i have found that coming from one operating system where you know all the intricacies i'm talking windows here but you i know my way around windows and when i i haven't opened up a mac since 2016 and before then it wasn't since the Max of the 90s where you had the big fat colorful back into them right uh that's gonna offend somebody anyway i think <laughs> there's there's a lot that mac does right for the people that use their products and to me coming from a different product family it's a hard learning curve there's a lot of things that i fixed in the first week that i found myself going this shouldn't operate this way. And I said, well, wait, no, the people who use this, it's this like conflict in my head. It's the people that use this understand it this way. And I don't understand it this way. So maybe it's just me. But then I'm like, but wait, isn't, shouldn't, I don't, and I've caught myself in these loops. And I've also spent so much time fixing the things to the way I feel like they should be operating. And I'm, it, it's so weird because I'll, I'll be doing something, some long string of tasks and, then all of a sudden I will hit one of these snags that's OS related and spend another half an hour trying to figure out how to fix it or make it the way I expect it to go. And then I'll forget the task that I was initially doing. And that break in workflow is so detrimental. Uh, I will get used to it. It will be fine. But I'm just saying there's some growing pains. It's struggling, culture clash, whatever you want to call it. It's it's a little rough. <laughs> I, I keep on getting... Um... Quite a few people said, "Oh, you should use a Mac. Should use a Mac." I've, I'm similar vein. I've always used PCs. I've had so I've, I've flirted with some Macs in the past, um, and particularly the um, or what's the boxes you can get that have got the Intel processor, um, the Mac Minis. 
Um, so I've, we've, we've had a couple of them just to do some video processing and stuff. Um, but I like them as well because you can use a two, um, two button mouse on them. Um, but yeah, I, 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 I feel sorry for you um, having to uh, to go down the route. And like I said, I'm sure it'll be fine in time, but I I think I'd find the learning curve very frustrating. Oh, yeah. It is very frustrating. Anyway, that's going to be it for today. If you like this episode, we invite you to check out any one of the many episodes on exoskeletons I've referenced through tonight's episode. We have a lot of them. Comment wherever you're listening with what you think of the story this week. For more in-depth discussion, you can always join us on our Slack or Discord communities. Visit our official website. Sign up for our newsletter to stay up to date with all the latest Human Factors news. If you like what you hear and you want to support the show, there's a couple things you can do. One, leave us a five-star review. That is free for you to do. You can do that right now. Two, tell your friends about us. Word of mouth is how we grow. It really helps the show. Three, if you want to give Barry a Tesla with autopilot on it, consider supporting <laughs> us on Patreon. And as always, links to all of our socials and our website are in the description of this episode. I want to thank Mr. Barry Kirby for being on the show today. Again, where can our listeners go and find you if they want to talk about exoskeletons? On Twitter, you can find me at Baz underscore K. And you can also find me on the 1202 Human Factors podcast, which if you just go on any social media for hashtag 1202 podcast, you'll find me there. As for me, I've been your host, Nick Rome. You can find me streaming on Twitch every Monday evening from 4 to 5 Pacific for office hours and across social media at Nick underscore Rome. Thanks again for tuning into Human Factors Cast. Until next time, it depends. Spacecraft, railway locomotives, nuclear submarines, healthcare, jet aircraft, these are all examples of highly technical systems and organisations, and all have one particular thing in common. They all involve humans. Humans who want to do amazing things and are using technology to achieve them. They all have something else in common. They have amazing people ensuring that the users who are involved can do what they need to do, are safe when they do so, and have the optimum user experience. These people are Human Factors practitioners, and on 1202, the Human Factors podcast, they talk to me, Barry Kirby, about what they do, sharing their career paths, highlighting their ideas and best practices, and fundamentally raising awareness of our discipline. Find us on 1202podcast.com, on social media, and on your favourite podcast directory, because it's more than just common sense. 